The room beyond was darkened as I had known before, and as I entered it I noticed that the queer odor was stronger there. There likewise appeared to be some faint, half-imaginary rhythm or vibration in the air. For a moment the closed blinds allowed me to see very little, but then a kind of apologetic hacking or whispering sound drew my attention to a great easy chair in the farther darker corner of the room. Within its shadowy depths, I saw the white blur of a man's face and hands, and in a moment I had crossed to greet the figure who had tried to speak. Dim though the light was, I perceived that this was indeed my host. I had studied the Kodak picture repeatedly, and there could be no mistake about this firm, weather-beaten face with the cropped, grizzled beard. But as I looked again, my recognition was mixed with sadness and anxiety. For certainly this face was that of a very sick man. I felt that there must be something more than asthma behind that strained, rigid, immobile expression and unwinking glassy stare. And realized how terribly the strain of his frightful experiences must have told on him. That is an excerpt of the first paragraph, the seventh chapter of H.P. Lovecraft's short story, The Whisper in Dark. And you are listening to the H.P. Lovecraft <laughs> Literary Podcast. <laughs> here at hpodcraft.com. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Andrew Lehman. Still here. Yeah. Back again. And did you actually just stay over at Chad's the whole week? I did. Yeah, I did. It's been a long, wacky one. We got in a fight about a ladle. <laughs> Crazy. Oh. Heather is so patient and sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, once again, joining us is Matt Foyer. Yes, doing an excellent job reading. And Matt, of course, uh, is in the film adaptation by the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society of this story, The Whisper in Darkness. And we're also lucky enough this week to have the music of Troy Sterling Neese accompanying the episode once again, uh, excerpts from his score for the film. Which Andrew is the co-writer and producer of. And and as we're talking about the story, we're, we're talking about that movie a little bit, which yeah. uh, will be playing worldwide at different festivals and sometime in the, the near future coming out on DVD. Yes. We just got to the moment where our protagonist, uh, Wilmarth, who's a literature professor with an interest in folklore, has just traveled out to the wilds of Vermont to see what's going on with his buddy Akeley, who's been under siege by an alien presence, yet somehow has just become best friends with them. Yeah. And Wilmarth is entering the house now to... Uh, for this first actual face-to-face meeting with the guy that he's been corresponding with for months. Yeah. Now, Akeley, this guy, his facial hair sort of hides the movement of his lips. Yeah, and he's wrapped up in a scarf and a hat. and Bandages on his feet. That's ostensibly because he's terribly, terribly ill. Mm -hmm. But he's seated sort of immobily in a chair, and he's totally bundled up and dark in the room. It's they, the, the stage is set for to make it really hard to really get a good look at, yeah. at Henry Akeley. Now, in the film, uh, this is a part portrayed by Barry Lynch. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. That is correct. And he does a great job. He's flipping yeah. awesome. I'm a big yeah. Barry Lynch fan. Why, why are you such a big Barry Lynch fan? Because Barry Lynch played Ensign DeSev on Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> Duh. Chad. Yeah. It was on the episode Face of the Enemy. The character of Akeley whispers... Wilmarth, I'm ill. You know, I'm very sorry. There's a meal in the other room that I've made up for you. So get yourself set up, check out your room, come back in a bit, and, and we'll chat. And go ahead and all the stuff that you brought, put it on the table. Yeah. Just leave all that evidence right here where I can see it while you go off and have a sandwich. Yeah. And I love, too, that he's like, 
Go ahead, go off. By the way, Einstein is wrong. Like, he's just throwing out all of these things. <laughs> yeah, that that initial conversation is kind of a bizarre one. Yeah, he says lots of things. Before he kicks him off into the kitchen at, to go eat, he says, you know, Einstein's wrong, that there is ways to travel faster than light. They're, they're going to go to Yugoth, and, and he describes Yugoth specifically, which is very Lovecraftian, talking about cyclopean towers and bridges, and there's no windows, and they have black rivers, and it's terrible and beautiful. I think he makes reference to Poe or Dante. Mm-hmm. And he also talks about Cthulhu and Raleigh. And this is the part that he brings up Kinyon. Yeah, from the and, mound. Yeah, and Red Litten, Red Litten Yoth, or, which is mm-hmm. also from the mound. So all these things, when I first read the story, I didn't know it had actually been used before in another story because I never read the mound up until you know we talked about it on the show. Although nobody would have known that because the mound wasn't published under his name, I don't think, when it came out. And it was published much later than this story. Yeah. The mound was published after Lovecraft's death. I think so, yeah. yeah. The, the Whisper in Darkness was published... Shortly after. So nobody would have gotten those. For $350, that's how much money he got for it, by the way. Oh, for uh, Whisper in Darkness? For Whisper in Darkness, which is the most money he ever got paid for any work of his ever. A pretty nice payday. So it is a pretty nice payday. I mean, what would be a good estimate of that dollar amount now? I think, generally speaking, 1920s dollars are, if you multiply by seven, it's a Mm -hmm. fairly comparable rate. Not bad. That's like, what, 2,500 bucks? That's pretty good. Yeah. They have this conversation. All these things get thrown out, but he says, hey, we'll chat about this later. Yeah. yeah. You know? And, and, and Wilmarth <laughs> even says, you know, I liked what he was saying. I mean, I was okay with the conversation. I just wish he hadn't gloated so much about yoga, you know? Yeah. His, whole, like perso- yeah, his whole personality has utterly changed from the voice that's coming out of that thing sitting in the chair is not the voice that came through the letters that right. Wilmarth yeah. has been reading all this time. It's right. a, It's a fundamentally different person. Wilmarth goes in to, to eat, and actually the dinner's pretty good. Which surprised me. Except for the coffee. Yeah. Coffee tastes really bad. Yeah. yeah. Something weird about that coffee. He tasted it and then he spit it out. We did shoot the coffee. Did you really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the very elaborate meal preparation scene with the coffee and everything. <laughs> I found an actual vintage thermos, the whole schmear. It's, we ended up cutting it out of the movie, but we Aww. did We did shoot the whole elaborate coffee sequence. Totally off topic, but there's a Futurama episode where Bender decides to be a chef. I thought this was going to be a scene like that. Bender comes out with a plate and he goes, you guys like swarms of things, right? <laughs> just, he doesn't understand how people eat. I thought he was going to come in and it would be a piece of cake on top of some diet ice, you know, with like a spoon shoved in it. They just don't know how to make food at all or how it works. Apparently they're pretty good at making sandwiches or they have a human agent who does this for them. Yeah, exactly. That Martha Stewart works for the vegan. That makes a lot of sense. Right? <laughs> yeah, he tries that coffee and it's terrible. It's terrible. There's something wrong with the coffee. So he pours it out right down the sink. Probably a good idea that he did that. He goes back into the room to talk with Akeley and they have a bit more conversation. Yeah. Of the extent of the cosmic horrors unfolded by that raucous voice... I cannot even hint. He had known hideous things before, but what he had learned since making his pact with the outside things was almost too much for sanity to bear. Even now I absolutely refuse to believe what he implied about the constitution of ultimate infinity, the juxtaposition of dimensions and the frightful position of our known cosmos of space and time in the unending chain of linked cosmos atoms which makes up the immediate supercosmos of curves, angles, and material and semi-material electronic organization. Never was a sane man more dangerously close to the arcana of basic entity. Never was an organic brain nearer to utter annihilation in the chaos that transcends form and force and symmetry. I learned whence Cthulhu first came, and why half the great temporary stars of history had flared forth. I guessed from hints which made even my informant pause timidly. 
the secret behind the Magellanic clouds and globular nebulae, and the black truth veiled by the immemorial allegory of Tao. The nature of the doles was plainly revealed, and I was told the essence, though not the source, of the Hounds of Tindalos. The legend of Yig, father of serpents, remained figurative no longer, and I started with loathing when told of the monstrous nuclear chaos beyond angled space, which the Necronomicon had mercifully cloaked under the name of Azathoth. It was shocking to have the foulest nightmares of secret myth cleared up in concrete terms whose stark, morbid hatefulness exceeded the boldest hints of ancient and medieval mystics. Ineluctably, I was led to believe that the first whisperers of these accursed tales must have had discourse with Akeley's Outer Ones, and perhaps have visited outer cosmic realms as Akeley now proposed visiting them. Wow. Yeah. That's a hell of a lot of stuff. That's a hell of a lot of stuff. That's, you know, one has to think that this conversation must have lasted quite some time to mm. cover all of that stuff. Yeah. I, I wish I could find out some of the stuff where Cthulhu first came from. Yeah. Super exciting. Nature <laughs> of The nature of doles, which were the same creatures from uh, Dream Quest. Okay, so but in that, they're called bowls. When they're called bowls, but they are, Lovecraft connects those and says that they're they're actually the same things. Dolls and bulls okay, are, sure are the same creature, yeah. I love the little parenthetical, I was told the essence, though not the source of the house <laughs> <Yeah>. of Tindalos. <laughs> and where do those come from? I don't know. He doesn't know. Ned doesn't know. <laughs> well, no, I mean, did he... Is Tindalos, that, what are you, crazy? Is that a Clark Ashton Smith creation? No, no, no. no. Lovecraft no? Uh, did this, and then Frank Belknap Long wrote a, a story that... Um, uh, Based off just the sentence, but Long then took it and ran with it. Yeah, he made it. He wrote a, yeah. a story about it. Uh, yeah. So this is the first. Okay. Yeah, it's the first time that they're ever mentioned. It is a Lovecraft creation. So much as Hounds of Tindolos. That's it. That's there's nothing yeah. else. Where, where Frank Belknap Long made them these creatures that existed in angles and could move through time yeah. and do all this stuff. And they're like dogs, but they're intelligent. And but that's not Lovecraft. Lovecraft just wrote those three words Hounds and of then yeah, exactly. And I certainly didn't remember this. It kind of was strange in my rereading. The black truth veiled by the allegory of Tao. This major Eastern religion has some terrible black well, that's, truth behind That's it. sort of classic Lovecraft mixing yeah. elements from the real world with stuff he totally made up. Yeah. And, you know, just enough to get everybody good and excited and terribly yeah. confused and think, wait a minute, how much of this is true? Yeah. And, you know, deliberately spelling doles one way in this story and spelled a slightly different way in a different story. Mm. And it's like, wait, are those the same thing? Yeah. Or yeah. are they different? What's going on? Gosh, the of religions to sort of put a black truth behind the philosophy <laughs> of religion, I don't know, but the Tao, I, I was just really found that odd and, and really neat, actually. Yeah. <laughs> What's going on that I don't know about in compassion, patience, simplicity, and vampirism? Like, what is it behind <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's a lot of heavy stuff. Night falls. Wilmarth lights a, a lamp. As Andrew said, they, they probably had this conversation for quite a while. Yeah, and, you know, it's a lot for Wilmarth to take in. And Akeley sort of senses that you maybe need a little more convincing. I'm right. laying some heavy stuff on you, and maybe you need something to help it sink in. <laughs> so that's what he tells him about the brain trap. Well, so why don't you take that cloth down <laughs> off that hutch and take a look at what I've got hidden on the furniture over there. There was a harmless way to extract a brain and a way to keep the organic residue alive during its absence. The bare, compact cerebral matter was then immersed in an occasionally replenished fluid within an ether-tight cylinder of a metal mined in Yuggoth. 
certain electrodes reaching through and connecting at will with elaborate instruments capable of duplicating the three vital faculties of sight, hearing, and speech. For the winged fungus beings to carry the brain cylinders intact through space was an easy matter. Then, on every planet covered by their civilization, they would find plenty of adjustable faculty instruments capable of being connected with the encased brains, so that after a little fitting, these traveling intelligences could be given a full sensory and articulate life, albeit a bodiless and mechanical one, at each stage of their journeying through and beyond the space-time continuum. It was as simple as carrying a, a phonograph record about and playing it wherever a phonograph of the corresponding make exists. Of its success, there could be no question. Akeley was not afraid. Had it not been brilliantly accomplished again and again? It's a pretty crazy concept. Yeah. But a pretty genius one. As I a, think so As too. a way of circumventing the impossibility of human space travel, it's yeah. like, well, let's just take the part that you really need, put it in a thing that can survive interstellar space, yeah. and off you go. You sort of become a, uh, a almost like a biological computer at that point. Your brain it just gets sectioned off and you get hooked into these other machines, and that's how you're going to interact with the world. So it's sort of this almost... Uh, precursor to transhumanism yeah totally yeah. and and this is a concept that was to show up in a, a lot of sci-fi after this where you'd have a brain oh yeah the brain in a jar is you know a classic science yeah. fiction scene and this is i don't know if it's the first but it's certainly one of the earliest uses and you know it's very thorough and complete mm -hmm. the way he sets up the brain cylinder in this story is hard to improve on yeah it really is it's neat and uh, and as you said akeley goes by the way, I've got some brain cases on the shelf yeah. over there. <laughs> Just ignore the one with my name on it for the time being. <laughs> one of the things about the story that, that does bug me a, a little bit, the one way to make sure the guy notices the one with your name on it is to tell him to ignore it. Yeah, you know, exactly. How can you, you know, if you really want him to ignore the, the cylinder with your name on it, then don't, don't it point there. it out. Don't even put it up there. <laughs> yeah. Who put all these things on the sh I don't, yeah, it's funny. Well, um... Some of the cylinders have people in them. Some of them have aliens or in them. Creatures from somewhere else, somewhere more yeah. interesting than here. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's, there's three humans, six fungoid beings who can't navigate space corporeally. This is one of my favorite accidentally funny sentences where it says, uh, two beings from Neptune, God, if you could see the body this type has on its own planet. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest entity. Well, so I assume he means it's got some crazy looking thing or yeah, whatever, no you know, but it's like, I'm telling you, Wilmar, it's... Chicks from Neptune. The planet of Lana Turner. Woo! They're seriously banging up there. Um, <laughs> he says, why don't you get B67 out? Bring that one yeah. down. Which is a human, right? Yes. Then there's this strange teaching scene, you know, where he kind of instructs someone how to do everything. Yeah, how to plug in the, the machinery, how to attach all the, the sense instruments to the brain case itself mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Plugs it in, plug this in here, <laughs> turn this on, turn these knobs this way. It's cutting-edge 1929 technology that he's describing. Vibrators and diaphragms. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Other crazy... <laughs> Wait a minute. You know, it's it's a very Jules Verne sort of, mm. uh, you know, collection of machines. Yeah. And I, I like that Wilmar says, to this day, I do not know why I obeyed those whispers so slavishly. He just feels compelled to do what yeah. he's told to do. Well, the droning voices have, yeah, so. have that effect. I mean, if the the Migo, their natural mode, of course, uh, of communication is telepathy. So you mm -hmm. have to imagine that even though he's hearing this 
voice, he maybe also is somehow being influenced on a telepathic level to you know follow instructions or do whatever it is that he's being told to do. Yeah. And they he fires the thing up and this uh, it starts speaking to him in a sort of human. Well, I well, think no, it's not a human voice. Actually. You're very right, mechanical, right. very me- lifeless, metallic, mm-hmm. completely one note, monotone, metallic. Yeah, that's this B sixty seven is the last convincer in the, getting yeah. him on board with the plan. Yeah. Like, this is great. I love being in this brain case. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. yeah, I've seen all these things that you can't imagine. I'm, I'm visiting other other planets. I think he's, he's been at 37 different celestial bodies, planets, dark stars, and less definable objects. He's been out and about uh, in his little brain. And he's saying it hasn't harmed me at all. Yeah. And he says, I wouldn't even want my body back. I mean, I could have my body back whenever I wanted, but I don't even want it back anymore. Yeah. Being a brain in a jar is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, he concludes by saying, Altogether, I hope most heartily that you will decide to come with Mr. Akeley and me. The visitors are eager to know men of knowledge like yourself and to show them the great abysses that most of us have had to dream about in fanciful ignorance. It may seem strange at first to meet them, but I know you will be above minding that. I think Mr. Noyes will go along too, the man who doubtless brought you up here in his car. He's been one of us for years. I suppose you recognized his voice as one of those on the record Mr. Akeley sent you. Uh, that uh, explains why yeah. Noise's voice was so hauntingly familiar yet hard to place. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It was on the, uh, it's on the phonograph cylinder. And then, the, and then the guy, he politely asked to be shut down. Yeah, B67 says, uh, you know, I, I don't mind being shut off is a very pleasant, that's like dropping off into a relaxing sleep with pleasant dreams. I don't mind it at all. So yeah. please just shut off those machines and you might let that one... I forget which yeah, one. Do it that is. one the last. Do that one last. Yeah. I whether it's the, <laughs> the order doesn't matter, but yeah. the visual one. Yeah, just last. yeah. I, yeah. How he likes to go to bed. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Watching reruns of The Office or who knows. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, it's like, all right, we're done for tonight. Go ahead and go to bed. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. But leave all that evidence on the table. Yeah. Always and, leave that evidence. And I'm gonna just stay here. Yeah. I'll, just... I'll sleep here in the chair, like I often do. Mm-hmm. I often just never move for days on on end. Yeah. <laughs> well, which is kind of funny in that moment. Then when Will Marth, he t- he's got his pocket flashlight and then he's got his revolver with him. Revolver, I know. Somebody tried to. Yeah, I was like, well, when up I saw Providence, that he had his revolver, right? I was like, well, what? Everybody what? carries firearms in Lovecraft stories. It's a good thing that he did. I mean, it's it's a good thing. He doesn't end up actually shooting anybody in this. No. Well, don't spoil it for everybody. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Good to be protected. Well, so, uh, but he he goes up there, he's got his gun and his flashlight, and he's just laying on the bed in his clothes, trying to really wrap his brain around everything that he's learned. And the house, the house still has that weird smell, and there's still the sensation of there's some weird vibration or some some sort of rhythm coming from Mm -hmm. somewhere Uh in the house. There's something not right about this house. And he really notices the absence of outside sounds at this moment. There are some great senses where Lovecraft says, like, I could imagine how my host was sitting there with cadaverous stiffness in the dark. So it is funny that he elects to just stay down there, but but if you imagine him up there in the room and he's just thinking about it, and that guy's just sitting down there in the dark by himself. Oh, so creepy. It is creepy. It's, it's, yeah. Very creepy. it's really chilly. Unfortunately, in Chapter 8, Wilmarth takes a nap, right? <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I'm so freaked out, I can't sleep, I can't sleep, and then he falls asleep. <laughs> Well, it's been a long day. It has he's been. He's overwhelmed. 
It's a lot. It's a lot to take in. He traveled. He did a lot of traveling that day as well. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. And the time zone did change when he came into Vermont. <laughs> right. They made that very clear. <laughs> yeah, because they don't do that daylight savings in Vermont. Heck no. no. He wakes and he doesn't know how long he could have been sleeping. Now this is the part where Lovecraft does the thing where he kind of skips ahead to the yeah before he rearranges he... the order in which he tells him it. Yeah. Right. Says so I woke up. I don't know how I was sleeping, but uh, I ran away from the place. I took Akeley's Ford. Um, got out of there. I went to the sheriff. When they came back, Akeley's clothes were on the floor, but he was gone. There were some strange bullet holes mm-hmm. here and there, mm-hmm. but no trace of Akeley. No trace of the machines. Right. No trace of any of the stuff that I would have told them about. Mm-hmm. He hangs around town for a while, yeah. uh, trying to find out for a couple of weeks. No sign of Akeley no. anywhere. But he is able to corroborate most of the things from his letters in that time. He he goes and he checks in, and yes, he was going and ordering more dogs. And yes, there were problems at the post office and all these things that he was saying. I mean, all that is consistent, but Akeley's completely disappeared. And Wilmarth just says, I left, and, and I decided I'm never going back to Vermont ever again. He's really nervous about the discovery of Pluto. When was Pluto discovered? It was discovered on February 18th, 1930. And mm-hmm. when when it was mentioned in the newspaper, Lovecraft had already started writing the story. So he oh, wrote... Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So he wrote in a letter to James F. Morton, uh, March 15th, 1930. He goes, what you think of that new planet? Hot stuff. It's probably Yuga. When, when they say it was discovered in 1930, people pretty much knew that there had to be another planet out there. So mm-hmm. they it was discovered because people were actively looking for it. Its existence was predicted by, you know, theory and mathematical models. So yeah. the discovery in 1930 was just the first visual confirmation that, oh, yeah, there it is. But the existence of Pluto had long been uh, theorized and and believed to be true. So it's it's not like the existence of Pluto just took everybody completely by surprise. They discovered it because they were specifically looking for it. Yeah, yeah. I wonder why they were looking for it so hard. (laughs) Maybe they were <laughs> commanded to. but and, and they've since downgraded the status. It's oh, yeah. Now, of course, they don't anymore. even call it. Now Pluto's been turned into a dwarf planet. And, but it's still horrifying that well, it's out there. And it's one of, you know, this and the actual Vermont floods. They're two real world events that makes it fun to say things like, this is based on a true story. Those yeah. floods that are mentioned at the beginning actually happened. They yeah. were the worst floods in the history of Vermont. I forget what the death toll was, but it was, it was very high. There was, you know, millions of dollars in property damage. The Whisper in Darkness is based on a true story. There, there really were horrible floods. <laughs> they really did discover a, a mysterious ninth planet mm-hmm. at the edge yeah. of the solar system. You know, it's all completely true. Yeah, it follows that everything else in the story is therefore also <laughs> true. Uh, and getting back to that, uh, Wilmar says, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me go back and tell you what actually happened. Then. Why I fled. Somebody was fumbling with his latch. when he, This is kind of what woke him up. And then as he started, it just stopped. And then he heard the floorboards mm. creaking and, and that there's talking and conversation going on. At this point, he starts hearing that there are people downstairs. He hears the voice that was on the phonograph record and then this kind of buzzing sort of talking. And then also the the metallic voice of B-67. And they're having some kind of conversation down there, which he can't make out what's going on. But there's some kind of uh, argument or debate of, of, about it. Yeah, well, and, and, and he does note that we assume it's B-67, but it could actually be anybody. Right. Presumably, it, everybody who speaks through that machine sounds exactly right. the same. So it's... Yeah voice of B-67 would sound exactly the same as the voice of anybody else who might happen yeah. to be having mm-hmm. a brain in a jar. And margaret And margaret could, could be, be Anne margaret sure. for all of Sound the same. It's, it's enough to make him think, I'm just going to get out of here. Yeah. I'm going to cut my losses. I don't, I don't want any part of this. 
and uh, then he does some yoga. <laughs> so he stretches vigorously because he wants to make sure that his muscles are up to the. Uh... That was my other question: is, is there a yoga scene in the in the movie? No, there's no yoga scene in the movie. We had to cut something, Chad. <laughs> well, he stretches out. He gets all limber. He's a little, you know, downward dog, and then he uh, creeps down. So the conversation has ended, right? Uh, whatever these guys have decided to, or whatever the debate was about, it, it comes right. to a conclusion. When he creeps down, Noyes is there, but he's sleeping. He's asleep on the couch in yeah. the room. So weird that he's just crashed out weird. on the couch there. Yeah, I don't know what they're... What are their plans? I mean, what, what's what's happening right now? We don't know. No. Ooh. <laughs> uh, well, That's, and we never do. We never know. No, well, the machine is off. He thinks about turning it on. I have no idea why, but he doesn't. <laughs> well, he's, I mean, he does see the cylinder with Akeley's name on it, and I think he thinks that he might be able to, if he plugged that cylinder in, he would presumably be having a conversation with Akeley. Although, if he thinks that the guy in the chair is Akeley, I mean, does he think that there's actually a brain in that jar? Is that jar just standing by for use later? Does he uh-huh. think it's already occupied? It's not at all clear, hmm. I think, what Wilmar thinks is in that jar that has Akeley's name on it. He's not yeah. entirely sure, but one thing he's going to do is check on Akeley to see if he's yeah. still in the corner there. And he sees it, he shines a flashlight over there and sees his clothes on the floor and wonders what's up. Would to heaven I quietly left the place before allowing that light to rest again on the vacant chair. As it turned out, I did not leave quietly, but with a muffled shriek which must have disturbed, though it did not quite awake the sleeping sentinel across the hall. That shriek and noises still unbroken snore are the last sounds I ever heard in that morbidity-choked farmhouse beneath the black-wooded crest of a haunted mountain. That focus of trans-cosmic horror amidst the lonely green hills and curse-muttering brooks of a spectral, rustic land. Lots of good hyphenated adjectives in that paragraph. Curse-muttering brooks. (laughs) Still unbroken snore. What could it have been that he saw? I don't know, but it sounds pretty mind-blowing. Pretty pretty scary. Something that would make him shriek when he's trying to be sneaky and then just Mm. get the hell out of there. As I have implied, I let my flashlight return to the vacant easy chair after its circuit of the room. Then, noticing for the first time the presence of certain objects in the seat, made inconspicuous by the adjacent loose folds of the empty dressing gown. These are the objects, three in number, which the investigators did not find when they came later on. As I said at the outset, there was nothing of actual visual horror about them. The trouble was in what they led one to infer. Even now, I have my moments of half-doubt, moments in which I half-accept the skepticism of those who attribute my whole experience to dream and nerves and delusion. The three things were damnably clever constructions of their kind and were furnished with ingenious metallic clamps to attach them to organic developments of which I dare not form any conjecture. I hope devoutly hope that they were the waxen products of a master artist despite what my inmost fears tell me great god that whisperer in darkness with its morbid odor and vibrations sorcerer emissary changeling outsider that hideous repressed buzzing and all the time in that fresh, shiny cylinder on the shelf. Poor devil. 
prodigious surgical, biological, chemical, and mechanical skill. But the things in the chair, perfect to the last subtle detail of microscopic resemblance or identity, were the face and hands of Henry Wentworth Akeley. And that is the end of the story. That's the shocking conclusion. The shocking conclusion. So that we all saw coming about <laughs> yeah. twenty-five pages ago. So what does that imply? It implies that there was a, a Akeley puppet. Are the things in the chair? He's he's left it open to interpretation. The things in the chair are either fiendishly clever reproductions of the face and hands of, Win- of Henry Akeley, or they are in fact the face and hands of Henry Akeley. In yeah. which case, yeah. you know, oh boy, Henry's Henry's done for. It's pretty disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he describes it as waxen, mm-hmm. once again reflecting cutting edge fake mm. human technology of the time. <laughs> in the movie version, <laughs> the uh, Dave Snyder built incredibly amazing silicone <laughs> replica of the head and hands of uh, face and hands of Henry Akeley. It's hard for a, a modern day reader to imagine a wax face or hands really yeah. fooling anyone, right? Quite quite that way. No, they cut his face off, man. That's what yeah, it is. Yeah, that's the thing. See, that's the thing. They, they got some binder clips, and yeah, they just they, clipped it up there. They, and they cut his face off. They, they, yeah. they talked about him being, uh, them being surgeons, so it really does imply that. And they're put his, they're putting his brain into a cell. I mean, yeah, it's gotta be his, it's gotta be his face. His, I mean, that's that's what I always took away from the story. I never thought it would be just a fake face. Now, I, there, now there was a point of controversy which I didn't even know existed until I was reading the H.P. Lovecraft Encyclopedia. I don't know. Have you heard of this? That actually Nair Lathotep himself was in the chair, what? pretending to be Akeley. And the reason why have you heard guys either of you heard this before? No. 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 Well, okay. In the story, now when you go back. Um, uh, from the phonograph recording of the ritual made in the woods by Akeley, one of the fungi uh, at, at one point says, Tanir Lathotep, mighty messenger, must all things be told, and he shall put on the semblance of men, the waxen mask and the robe that hides, and come down from the world of seven sons to mock. Which is, you know, earlier in the story, w- during mm. that whole stuff, the you know, the recording. So some people think that that is saying that actually Nyarlathotep himself was pretending to be Akeley. Hmm. Hmm. I, n- I never really yeah, thought of that yeah. before, but but yeah, that is actually what it says in the story in the robe that hides and wax and mask. There you go. It could be. Maybe, but why would Nyarlathotep need to put on a mask? I mean, he's like the god of a thousand forms. Exactly. Wouldn't, and that's, wouldn't he be able to do a better impersonation of Henry Akeley than putting on a mask? Where Wherein lies the controversy. <laughs> uh, okay. Nyarlathotep appears as the black man in the Dreams of the Witch House. He's in uh, Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath, and he's also in, he's the Egyptian guy in Nyarlathotep, the, that right. particular story. So, or Nyarlathotep, as Andrew pronounces it. More controversy. Oh. Uh. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that that was sort of interesting and uh, something that I learned. By researching. <laughs> well, another thing I learned by research, friend of the show, Robert M. Price, has asserted that this is really just a rewrite of the novel, the Arthur Mackin book, The Novel of the Black Seal. Mm-hmm. I, don't oh. know if it, I don't know if you could call it a rewrite, but there's certainly a lot of interesting parallels between the novel of the Black Seal and, and The Whisperer in Darkness. There's also another parallel, going back to the Charles Fort thing, mm-hmm. between uh, 
Mackin's book and a phenomenon that Fort reports on in a couple of his books is is the black stones, the thunderstones. I think if my memory serves, Fort refers to them as thunderstones, and in the novel of the Black Seal, it's called a sixty stone Ishishkar. Mm. I forget it's it's an impossible to pronounce word, mm. but the the black stone is is one of the key uh, elements of the novel of the Black Seal. It's that's what's being referred to in the title, and the novel of the Black Seal also features a. A professor of, of with an interest in folklore who discovers horrible goings on in the backwoods of, in England. In the case of the novel The Black Seal, it doesn't involve aliens from another planet, but it does involve you know the little people, mm-hmm. uh, the fairy folk of of Celtic folklore, and the black stone is tied in with them. And like in the novel The Black Seal, the mysterious professor who's sort of both he's sort of a combination of Akeley and Wilmarth combined into one mm-hmm. character. And in the end of the novel, The Black Seal, he also vanishes under mysterious circumstances. Right. And his, his, the governess of his children, Miss Lally, is the one left behind to tell the story of what happened. Hmm. Uh, there are a lot of interesting parallels. But Lovecraft brought a lot of new stuff to, oh, sure. to The Whisper in Darkness. So I, I mean, and, far be know, for me to disagree with uh, Bob Price. But right. I would say it's <laughs> not really a rewrite of the novel, The Black Seal. And no. Lovecraft's being pretty cool. Like, he references Mac in, in the story. Yeah. He references the little people in, yeah. in those legends and, and when Lovecraft went to um, Vermont, he actually wrote a little essay called Vermont, A First Impression. He actually took parts from that little essay that he wrote and put them into the story about, you know, uh. what, all of his descriptions and, and things. But there's a couple of people, you know, uh, Akeley's based in part off this guy that he met called uh, Bert Ackley on that specific trip. He just talks a lot about that guy Orton that lived in Battle- Brattleboro and, um, you know, just... He really goes into a lot of detail on his Vermont trip and really dug it. Did you guys like the story? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, no one will be surprised to discover that I love this story. It's always been one of my favorites. I think the Mego are excellent creation. They are fleshed out enough to be fascinating and left mysterious enough to be a blank canvas on which you can do all kinds of fascinating things. Yeah, It's a great blend of scares and science fiction. It's one of the earliest presentations of what have become, you know, classic science fiction themes. If the ending is heavily foreshadowed, okay. Yeah. Apart yeah, from whatever. that, it's, you know, it's terrific. Yeah, I really dig it. Yeah. Me too. It's loaded with stuff. I mean, he throws away a lot of those, not throws away, but, you know, he just refers to, you know, vast amounts of the Cthulhu mythos in incredibly brief mm-hmm. Passages, but I mean, if you think about it, there's a ton of Cthulhu mythos in this story. Oh yeah, there are several fascinating characters who likewise are only mentioned. In, you know, the mysterious spy who kills himself. Yeah, who never even gets a name. It's like yeah. that's a whole huge story in and of itself. And you know, what's up with that guy who shoots him, you know, kills himself? The the Walter Brown character. The no, I mean, noise. We only see him briefly in that scene in the car, and yeah. then when he's asleep on he's the couch, sleeping on the couch. Yeah, <laughs> there's a whole you know, there's a whole noise story going on. Yeah. He's been one of us for years. There's, it's just, yeah. uh, it's a very rich story full of great stuff. It really is. It's really good, and I'm glad we got to it. Uh, we've had to go through some dogs to get here. I really, <laughs> yeah. really uh, appreciated uh, having the chance to sit down and, and seriously enjoy the story, which is one of, you know, one of Lovecraft's greatest. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew, so much for sitting in with us on this. My pleasure entirely. Uh, as usual, you're a wealth of knowledge about it, and pleasant to hear you speak. Yes. The, the movie is The Whisper in Darkness. It's uh, coming out to festivals. It'll be on DVD soon. Please look for it. You can learn all about it at CthulhuLives.org, where they have a blog about the making of the film and various stills and even some merchandising, I believe. 
Yeah, Sean is just about to come back from a, a couple of film festivals in Europe, but no doubt when he's back in town, he'll update the blog with uh, the latest news about what's up with the movie, uh, its festival reception, and so forth. Great. Reviewing. Yeah. Uh, I just want to say that um, we'll thank Matt Foyer again for, for reading all yes. that wonderful text. He did a kick-ass job, as always, and uh, I love him. I, I mean, he's great. Good job. <laughs> Wow, there's a that, that's another story that's coming out of this podcast that I wish to get a little more serious treatment. What is this love affair going on? Next week we are taking a break uh, to prepare for the behemoth yeah. at the Mountains of Madness. That's right. Wow. And our guest will be Tom Cruise. No, it won't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm really looking forward to that, and uh, let's sign off. Thank you so much, Andrew, and then Chris. It's been great chatting with you. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and I'm Andrew Lehman. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. Hppodcraft.com. I guessed from hints which made even my informant pause timidly. What? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I just... Yes, what? What? what?